Tonight we come to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 22, which begins the famous marriage passage. It's the most well-known teaching on marriage relationships in the entire Bible. And when we come to this passage, it's very important for us to first consider what went before. Let's remember that this is just a part of an entire letter. And this part comes only after Paul has spent a great deal of time, a great deal of energy, and a great deal of eloquence trying to convince us of the great blessings that we have in Jesus Christ and how we're lifted up and blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We're part of his eternal plan. He's given us this great gift of reconciliation, not only between us and him, but between different groups of people. And most prominently in Paul's day, the issue was between Jew and Gentile. And going on and on in the first three chapters, talking to us about all that God has done for us. So please remember, as we talk very practically this evening, and it will be very practical, as we speak very practically about what we must do in following after the Lord, we never, ever want to forget this important dynamic of what God has done for us first. It's all built upon that. Now, when Paul gets around to speaking about what we do for the Lord, he talks about it in the context of walking in the light. We're now children of light, and we're to walk in the light. And one aspect of this walk in the light is being filled with the Spirit. He introduced that idea previously in chapter 5. Well, then he starts to list different aspects of being filled with the Spirit. One aspect of being filled with the Spirit is living a life full of praise and adoration of God. Uh, That's what he speaks of in verse 19. Then he speaks of another aspect of this life of the Spirit, and that's in verse 21, that we should be submitting to one another in the fear of God. And as we spent some time discussing at the end of last week's study, that has the idea that we should have a team mentality, that we should work together, no one putting their own interests above the team's interests, so to speak, but that we should have this common regard for the good of all in the body of Christ. Now we come to verse 22, where Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, before we begin this specific passage and this section having to do with marriage, I want you to know that I think that if we understand this passage, it will absolutely revolutionize our idea of what the Christian marriage is. Now, I have been a Christian since before the time I have been married. Although I have to say that for much of my married life, I did not appreciate the distinctiveness of the Christian marriage. And out of a time of, I would just very honestly say, personal need, uh, understanding my own sins and weaknesses and, and shortcomings as a husband, I felt very compelled that I had to understand these things for myself. And of course, if a pastor wants to understand something for himself, he should teach it to his people because it's going to force him to dig into it very deeply. And as I went out to research different books and different authors as to what they had to say about marriage in general, I had to say that with most, certainly not all, but with most Christian books about marriage, I was profoundly disappointed. Because with most Christian books about marriage, the general idea was to give the person helpful hints to improve their marriage. The idea would be like this. Well, what you need to do is communicate better. And then it would give you 10 points to better communication. And then it would say, what you need to do is start spending time together. And so here's 10 points to have a great date night and things like this. Now, 
I'm not against such ideas. I think they're wonderful, and I think that if they were followed, they would improve most marriages. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But let's be honest. There's nothing distinctively Christian about those ideas. If, if a couple, a husband and wife of Satan worshipers, were to follow those ten points of better communication, their marriage would improve. If they would start having a date night, Mr. Satan worshiper and Mrs. Satan worshiper, if they started doing that, their marriage would improve. And so what I started to understand was what we needed was something more than real good nuts and bolts how-to suggestions on how to have a better marriage. Listen, although I'm fully acknowledging there's a place for such practical instruction, I think that's even more important is to say, what is there distinctive about a Christian marriage? Is there anything that makes a Christian marriage different than a non-Christian marriage. Can I put the question another? Does Jesus Christ make any difference in marriage? Well, I think he does. Matter of fact, I think if properly understood, this passage teaches us how Jesus Christ revolutionizes the concept of marriage. And he begins, if we notice right here in verse 22, as I just read, that the marriage instruction begins by addressing the wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, why? Why does he address the wives first? It's very obvious. It's because wives tend to be the bigger problem in marriage, therefore they should be addressed first. Now, I'm not hearing as much laughter as I would like to from that. Obviously, what I said was a joke. Matter of fact, there's no way. Well, yes, thank you, thank you. You're helping me a little bit here. Of course, it's completely false to say such a thing. Nobody could argue for a moment that wives are the bigger problem in marriage. And that is not why Paul addresses the wives first. Nor is it out of some kind of gentlemanly chivalry that says, well, ladies first, let's speak to the ladies first. It's nothing like that. Paul addresses the wives first because the particular idea in his mind is carrying out this idea of submission. That's just what he wrote in verse 21. He spoke about this general idea of submission in the body of Christ. And then with the idea of submission very much in his mind, he says, now listen, wives, in particular, you have a duty to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Matter of fact, there's no question that Paul is continuing the thought from Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. In many of the best ancient Greek manuscripts, Ephesians 5.22 doesn't even contain the word submit. It simply reads, wives, to your own husbands. But of course, everybody understands that's what he's speaking of. The topic is submission, and Paul focuses on a particularly important realm of submission, the Christian marriage from the wife unto the husband. It's as if Paul said this, I commanded you to submit to one another in a very general way. Now, if you're going to do this in a general way, how much more should wives do it to their own husbands in the special relationship of marriage? So this is why he addresses the wives first, and then he says, wives, submit. Now, what does it mean to submit? To submit means that you recognize that someone has legitimate authority over you. It means that you recognize that there is an order of authority and that you are part of a unit, part of a team, and that you as an individual are not more important than the working of the unit or of the team. 
the, the person who is under submission. As I said last time we got together and we spoke about the word of submission in verse 21. It's a military word. It literally means to be under rank. To say, I recognize that there's some order of authority and I have a place in that order of authority and that there's someone over me in authority that I must submit to. You see, when we submit to God, we recognize his authority and we act accordingly. When we submit to the police, we recognize the authority of the police and we act accordingly. When we submit to our employer, we recognize the authority of our employer and act accordingly. So when a wife submits to her husband, she recognizes the authority of her husband and she acts accordingly. Now, let me make a very important point here that must be understood. Submission does not mean inferiority. This is a common misconception that people have. If it's a misconception held by the husband, he thinks, well, she's supposed to submit to me because I'm greater than her. No, no, no. If that misconception is held by the wife, she says, oh, the Bible tells me to submit. That means that he's greater than I am. Not one bit. Submission does not mean inferiority. If you want any evidence of that, look at the way that Jesus submitted to God the Father. Now, if you know your theology, you know that God the Son and God the Father are equally God. Yet God the Son submitted to God the Father. Why? Because he was inferior? No, he's not inferior. He submitted to God the Father because of an order of authority. Now, if you want to think of submission, don't think of it in terms of inferiority. Think of it in terms of just what the word means in the English meaning, submission. There is a mission for the Christian marriage, and that mission is obeying and glorifying God. And the wife says, I'm going to put myself, sub, under that mission. The mission is more important than my individual desires. I'm not putting myself below my husband. I'm putting myself below the mission God has for our marriage and for my life. It's submission. So, wives, submit, and then notice it says here, to your own husbands. This defines the sphere of a wife's submission. How far out does a wife's submission go? I want you to understand. It goes as far as the circle of her husband. The Bible never commands a general submission of women unto men in society. This order is commanded only in the spheres of the home and in the church. God has not commanded in his word that men have some kind of exclusive authority in the areas of politics or business or education or any such thing. Not at all. No, wives, submit to your own husbands. And then here in the last part of verse 22, you have the four words that I think illuminate everything as to the Lord. That's a crucial phrase. It colors everything that we understand about the passage. Now, I think that there have been two main wrong interpretations of that phrase, as to the Lord. What does it mean to say that the wife is to submit to the husband? By the way, I think most every Christian wife would say, well, yes, I'm to submit to my husband. They've heard it enough. Yes, I'm to. But what does it mean to do it as to the Lord? Well, one group might say, uh, the idea of submitting as unto the Lord means that a wife should submit to her husband as to God himself. Well, I mean, this is a popular way that this is taught, and I would disagree with it. The idea says, well, listen, you know, you submit to God, right? In the same way you should submit to me. 
You submit to God in absolutely everything without question. Therefore, you must submit to me or to your husband in the same way. This thinks that as to the Lord uh, describes the extent of submission. As far as you would submit to God, that's how far you should submit to your husband. As you can see, this is an interpretation that many husbands would like to hear. Now, there's a second wrong interpretation of this passage. Although, let me discuss this first one. This first one is wrong because even though it is true that the wife owes the husband a great deal of respect, I mean, after all, if you want to see, go to the pages of 1 Peter where uh, Peter sets across this example when he praised Sarah as the wife of Abraham as an example of a godly wife because she called Abraham Lord. Now, it doesn't mean Lord in the sense of God, but it means Lord in the sense of master. That's a lot of respect. But still, nowhere does it go so far to say that you submit completely to God, you must submit to your husband in the same way. You know why I would say that with great confidence? Because simply put, in no place do the scriptures say that you should submit to another human being as if they were God. Now, does the Bible say that you should submit to your employer? Yes, it does. Does that mean you should do whatever your employer tells you to do as if your employer was God? What if your employer tells you to lie or cheat or steal? Should you do it? Well, that's your employer, right? You're to submit to them. No, we understand that there comes a place where you should obey God rather than man. There are limits to the submission that your employer can expect of you. There are limits to the submission that the government can expect of you. There are limits to the submission that parents can expect of children. In no place do the scriptures teach an unqualified, without exception, submission, except to God and God alone. I would say that to violate this is to commit the sin of idolatry. So I would say it is flat out wrong to say that a wife should submit to her husband as if he were God. But then there's another wrong interpretation of this, and if you want to say this is the wrong interpretation that perhaps wives would like to hear. This wrong interpretation says that as to the Lord means that I'll submit to my husband as long as he does what the Lord wants. You you, you see, that way the wife often thinks it's her job to decide what the Lord wants. And this interpretation thinks that as to the Lord defines the limit of submission. Well, this is wrong. Now, it's true that there are limits to a wife's submission, which we'll discuss in a few moments. But when the wife approaches the phrase as to the Lord in this way, then it degenerates into a case of I'll submit to my husband when I agree with him. I'll submit to my husband when he makes the right decisions and carries them out in the right way. When he makes a wrong decision, well, then he isn't in the Lord, and I shouldn't submit to him. Now, let's be honest. There are many Christian wives who have that attitude. They have that attitude of, well, yes, I submit to my husband as to the Lord. When he's walking in the Lord and he's making the right decisions, I submit to him. When he's not making the right decisions, I don't submit to him. And she's the one who decides whether or not he's in the Lord or not. May I say very plainly, that is not submission at all. You see, except, to those, except for those people who are just plain argumentative, everyone submits to, every, to someone else when they're in agreement. It's only when there is disagreement when submission is tested. For, for me to say to you, I'll submit to you when I agree to you, with you, that's not submission at all. Because as soon as I don't agree with you, I say, well, I don't submit. You're not in the Lord anymore. 
So that's not what Paul is speaking about at all. Well, then what does Paul mean when he uses this phrase, as to the Lord? It doesn't define the limit of a wife's submission. It it doesn't describe the extent of a wife's submission. No, instead, it defines the motive of a wife's submission. What does it mean? It means, wives, submit unto your own husbands because it's part of your duty unto the Lord. It's an expression of your submission to the Lord. You see, you're doing it for Christ's sake. You're doing it because he tells you to. It's well-pleasing in his sight. Now, if we understand this, I have to say, wives, and I just want to be very, very straight with you, this puts a great deal of weight upon your submission. Do you understand what this says? This says that your submission to your husband is part of your Christian obedience. This means that a wife's submission to her husband is a measurement or is part of her Christian life. When a wife doesn't obey this word to submit to her husband as to the Lord, she isn't only falling short as a wife, she's also falling short as a follower of Jesus Christ. Can I raise another implication of this? This takes this completely out of the realm of my nature, or my personality. Now listen, this is how it is, and this is just human nature. You know how it is in human nature among men and women. Some people are naturally more independent, and some people are naturally more submissive. And it's very easy when submission is commanded for people who are kind of naturally submissive to just do it. I mean, it just kind of flows along with their nature anyway. It's not necessarily a great trial for them, but for those people who are more independent to just kind of say, well, that's not me. You know, that, that's not my nature. You know, that, that's just not my thing. Uh, I, I'm not really into that. Do you see what Paul says here? He goes, no, I'm not talking about your nature. I'm not talking about your personality. I'm talking about you as unto the Lord. You see, that is a very, very important statement. It also tells us that this has nothing to do with whether or not the husband is right on a particular issue. It has to do with Jesus Christ being right. I mean, he didn't say, submit to your husbands when they're right. He said, submit to your husbands as part of your Christian obedience. Can I say one other thing? And this has a great deal of relevance to the people listening to me here this evening. This means that a woman should take great care in how she chooses her husband. I say this to the young ladies here tonight. This is what God requires of you in marriage. This is his expectation of you. I'm not talking about your husband's expectation of you. Forget about that. This is Jesus' expectation of you in the marriage. Instead of looking for an attractive man, instead of looking for a wealthy man, instead of looking for a romantic man, you better first look for a man whom you can respect. I remember reading a story by G. Campbell Morgan. He he told the story of an older Christian woman, a missionary, I believe, who had never married. And he went up and, you know, she was a wonderful woman and she was beautiful and all of this. And so he got to talking to her. One day he asked her, he said, well, why is it that you never married? And you know what she said? She said, I never met a man who can master me. And Morgan said, she has the right idea. I mean, she realized she never met a man that she respected enough that she could say, I'll submit to him as part of my Christian obedience. You see, wives, I would just say this. If you want to please Jesus, if you want to honor him, 
then submit to your own husband as to the Lord. You've got to say, that's a lot in just that one first sentence there in verse 22. But let's go on to verses 23 and 24. He says, for the husband. Now, I just want you to take a look at those words. For the. Do you understand what he says when he uses those words? He's explaining something to you. You see, the command given in Ephesians 5.22 is difficult. Men, should we not recognize this? This is difficult for wives to fulfill. God knows that it's difficult. So what does he do? He gives us the reasons for his command. Isn't that wonderful? I would suggest to you that God is under no obligation to do so. God is under no obligation to give us the reasons why we should obey his commands. It would be enough for him to just say, I commanded it, you do it. But no, God is kind and generous enough to us. He wants to bring us as part into his plan. So not just that we blindly obey, so that we obey him with understanding what his plan is. And so he says, wives, there's a reason for your submission. Now, I'll suggest to you that we have already mentioned one reason for the submission in that it's part of your Christian obedience. That was at the end of verse 22, right? But now he's going to go on and explain more reasons why God puts this heavy duty of submission upon the Christian wife. Now, when I say heavy duty of submission, I want to say again, it's not unlimited submission. But we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Now, verse 23 again. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in everything. Okay, so the first reason for a wife's submission is it's part of her Christian obedience. That was in verse 22, right? Now, here comes the second reason for the wife's submission. For the husband is the head of the wife. You see, it's because the husband is the head of the wife. In its full sense, the head there has the idea of headship and authority. It means to have the appropriate responsibility to lead and the matching accountability. You see, it's right and it's appropriate to submit to somebody who's your head. Well, he's the head of the company. All right, he runs it. Well, he's the head of the foundation. Okay, he runs it. We should submit to the head. Now, when you look at the biblical idea of headship in other passages, such as 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 3, the emphasis is put constantly upon the fact that the man was created first and not the woman. So there's a natural priority for man. The scriptures also emphasize the idea that woman was made out of the man and taken out of the man to show a connection to him but that she was meant to be a help for him and a help that was appropriate for him. Now, this passage makes the point very clearly and strongly. God created Adam first and then gave him responsibility over Eve. This happened before the fall. Therefore, the the passage makes it clear that, that before and after the fall, God ordained there to be different roles between husband and wife. The difference in roles between husband and wife are not the result of the fall, and they're not erased by our new life in Jesus. And so he says, the husband is the head of the wife. He's going all the way back to Genesis, all the way back before the fall, explaining this relationship between Adam and Eve. And so he says that this idea is very prominent here. It's one of the reasons why a wife should submit to her husband. And by the way, we understand this in our culture, at least generally speaking, 
Of course, not everybody does it, and it's not true in every case. But generally speaking, in the Western world, when a husband and wife marries, what happens? She gives up her name and she takes his name. Do you understand that? It's not that they take uh, different names altogether. That would be an option, right? Let's take a third name. You know, not your last name, not my last name. We'll take a third name. They don't do that. And generally, they don't take the wife's name. And on a few occasions, they keep their own names, but not so often. The, the, the predominant role is that they take the husband's name. This is a demonstration of this idea of we're going to come under the husband's headship. So, he goes on to say, as also Christ is head of the church, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. This is a third reason for the wife's Christian submission to her husband. She should submit because of the relationship of the husband and wife being a model of the union between Jesus and his church. The point is very simple and it's very clear as well. We have a model for the marriage relationship. The model is the relationship between Jesus and the church. In that relationship, the headship of Jesus Christ is unquestioned. So also is the husband, the head of the team, that is that one flesh relationship of the husband and the wife. And interestingly, he also says, and he is the savior of the body. Now that's a very interesting idea, because we can understand how the husband is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. Okay, we understand that. But sometimes it's difficult to see how the husband is the savior of the body in the same way that Jesus is savior of the body, that is, of the church. Well, I would refer back to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones here, who believed that Paul was using the wider understanding of the word savior here, which can simply mean preserver or protector. It's just very much the idea that he would preserve or protect the wife as he speaks about in the following verses. But I want you to notice here, he speaks about the marriage being as a body. You see, the picture of the body shows how essential a Christian wife's submission is. What happens when you have a body that operates out from the authority of the head? The head tells the body to do certain things, but the body works independently and not under submission to the head. What you have is you have a very messed up person. You know, the, the, the head says to the body, here, that hammer in your hand, use it to hit the nail. And the body says, no, I'm going to use it to hit the thumb. You have a very messed up situation. And so the idea here is that the idea, the action, the, the initiative must be coordinated under the head. Now, if you notice, back here in these verses, he says there in verse 24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. You see, in this passage, we see three reasons for a wife's submission to her husband. Number one, it's part of her obedience to Jesus as to the Lord. Secondly, it's appropriate to the order of creation. The husband is the head of the wife. And third, it's appropriate because of the model of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, it's a very compelling argument that Paul gives here, telling us about why wives should submit to their husbands. And I would say that if Paul stopped right here at Ephesians 5.24, it would be easy for the Christian wife to feel that all the obligations are upon her. 
Because let's not deny it. In these first three verses in the passage, he has put enormous obligations upon the wife. But yet, Paul continues on and shows what obligations the Christian man has in marriage. But let's not forget, the Christian wife still has her obligations as well. I like to think that essentially husband or wife are called to the same main idea, but they express it in different ways. Both husband and wife are called to die to self. Submission is the way that the wife does it. Both husband and wife are called to sacrifice. Submission is the way that the wife does it. Both husband and wife are called to see their marriage as a model of Jesus' relationship to the church. Submission is the way that the wife honors that model. Both husband and wife are called to honor the order of creation. Submission is the way that the wife fulfills her place in that order. Both husband and wife are called to be motivated by the love and the command of Jesus. Submission is the way that the wife does that. Now, we do have to study one phrase here, though, in verse 24, before we leave it and go on talking about what God says to the man. It's that phrase that, well, I'm sure all the men here noticed it, in verse 24, where he says, So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. I can just imagine men underlining that in everything, in everything. Well, again, does he really mean everything? Well, again, I would say in everything, understanding the normal limits of human submission. You see, if the husband were to ask his wife to sin, she's free from her obligation to submit. I remember one time... uh, Wife came to me and she said, "Uh, my husband's filling out a tax return and the tax return is false and he knows it's false and I know it's false. he's, He's wanting to cheat the government of its money. And she said, he's telling me that I have to sign the tax return. What should I do? And I told her, don't sign it. Now back you up. He's telling you to lie. He's telling you to sin. Now would anybody say that the Bible commands this woman to, to, to do this? No. Because the Bible always teaches that if a human authority tells you to sin, you're to obey God rather than man. And so what exception is there to the wife's submission? We would say, well, first of all, if, if the husband tells her to sin. Secondly, we would say, and of course this would be an extreme situation, but secondly, we would say, if the husband is medically incapacitated or insane, she's free from her obligation to submit, right? Let's say some sad and tragic mental illness has overcome the husband. By the way, I've had those counseling situations. I remember very clearly the tragic case in our church family of a man who was afflicted with a mental disease that that he had kept under control for many, many years, but had mysteriously and suddenly resurfaced. And basically the guy went crazy and he told his wife to do crazy things. Now, would anybody say the Bible commands you to submit in such a case? I think not. The man is obviously medically incapacitated or insane. Third, I would say, that if a husband is physically abusive and endangers the wife, excuse me, endangers the safety of the wife or the children, the wife is free from her obligation to submit. She doesn't have to submit to his violence. If he says, stay in the room and let me beat you some more, let, let me endanger the children, I don't think there's any sane person who would say, well, the biblical command to submit means that you should stay there and take the, the blows. And then on a fourth level, I would say that when the husband breaks the marriage bond by adultery, 
The wife doesn't have to submit to it. You see, she doesn't have to submit to it and just accept it. The Bible says that she has the right to come out from under his rank in such cases. She has the right to divorce him. She has the right to say, no, I don't want to be under your authority anymore. The husband has no right to say, well, I'm the husband, I'm going to do this, and you have to submit to it. He has no right to say that whatsoever. Now, are there other instances, other cases? Well, some people talk about drug abuse or, or alcoholism. I would say this, this could be a category under medically incapacitated or insane or impaired in some way. If some husband is high on drugs or drunk and tells his wife to do something crazy or sinful, obviously she's not commanded to submit to it. So I want you to see that though the command for the wife to submit is very strong, because let's be honest, ladies, these four exceptions that we've spoke of, sin, insanity, uh, physical abuse, and adultery, those four categories, most of what goes on in the marriage doesn't fall under those four categories, correct? And so this is a very, very strong command to wives that they should submit to their husbands. Now, but before I go on and speak in verse 25 to the husbands, I think we should take a moment and think about this very soberly. Men, do, do you realize that this is part of your wife's Christian obedience? Therefore, it's part of Satan's strategy to tempt her into making this difficult for her. You see, I find something common in husbands who feel that their wife isn't submissive to them. They have a way of taking it very personally. I would say to that husband, don't take it personally. She's struggling with this as part of her Christian life. And secondly, I would say, what, do you think you're some dream to submit to? <laughs> well, honestly, what if a husband were to clone himself, right? And so there's two men identical in their thoughts and their feelings and in their actions. And now you have to submit to that clone of yourself. How would you feel about that? No thank you, many men would say. Well, what are you doing to be a kind of man that a woman would want to? Many men make submission to, their, uh, make submission to them from their wife a grievous thing. And let me tell you, that is a sin before God. You know what you're doing? You're tempting your wife into sin. Why are you making it hard for her to submit to you? This is part of her Christian obedience. You're tempting her. You're leading her into sin. You're not being a good husband. Instead of getting mad, instead of feeling personally hurt, if you feel your wife is not submissive to you, you should get down on your knees before God and you should pray that God would strengthen her in the spiritual battle that she's going for. And you should pray for more grace as a husband to be the kind of husband that your wife could gladly submit to. Why are you being such a trial for your wife to submit to? Well, this is the question that the husband has to ask himself. He has to realize that this is part of her wife's Christian walk instead of taking it so personally. Well, enough with the wives. I, I, I hope that we haven't put too much upon them, more than the Bible puts upon them. But it is a very, very strong word to them. So let's take a look at what God says to the husbands here, beginning at verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Paul's words to Christian husbands safeguards his previous words to wives. Though wives are to submit to their husbands, it never excuses a husband acting as a tyrant over his wife. 
No husband is entitled to say that he's the head of the wife unless he loves his wife. So the reign of the husband is to be a reign and a rule of love. It's a leadership of love. You see, he just says, love your wife. Paul uses the ancient Greek word agape. And the ancient Greeks had four different words that we could translate love. And it's important to understand the difference between the words. But just to say this, Paul used the ancient Greek word agape here. And just to get to the point of it all, agape has to do with the mind more than the emotions. Agape doesn't really have to do with feelings. It has to do with decisions. And sometimes we erroneously describe agape as God's love. It's not entirely true. Because men are said to agape sin in the Bible. The, the Bible says that men agape the world. But I'll tell you what love, what agape can be defined as. Agape can be defined as a sacrificial, giving, absorbing love. It has very little to do with emotion, but it has a lot to do with self-denial for the sake of someone else. Agape is a love that loves without changing. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or without demanding repayment. It's a love that's so great that it can be given to the unlovable or the unappealing. It's love that loves even when it's rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It doesn't demand or expect repayment. It gives because it's love. It doesn't love in order to receive. So understanding that, do you understand what Paul says here when he says, husbands, love your wives? You see, we can read this passage and think, and let me tell husbands, honestly, isn't this what we often think when we read this passage? We think that what Paul is saying, husbands, be kind to your wives. Husbands, be nice to your wives. Now listen, there's no doubt that in many marriages that would be an improvement, but that isn't what Paul speaks about. What Paul really means is, husbands, continually practice self-denial for the sake of your wife. How do you like that? We liked it better when we just thought he meant, oh, be nicer to your wife. No, this is lifting it far out of the realm of niceness and manners and all of that. He's saying, you need to practice constantly self-denial for the sake of your wife. Again, going on. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is the standard and the example of the Christian husband's love. How much should I love my wife? How much should I sacrifice for her and give her? Say, okay, well, here, here's the standard you should do for the way that Jesus Christ sacrificially loved his church. You see, Jesus' attitude towards the church is a pattern for the Christian husband's love to his wife. This shows that the loveless marriage does not please God. How would you feel? Here you are with your relationship with Jesus. Okay, there it is. Your relationship with Jesus. And you get along fine. You're a follower of Jesus Christ and all that. But there's no love. There's no love between... Can anybody say that that pleases God? Not at all. Matter of fact, we remember very vividly the letter to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, don't we? Where he rebuked the, uh, the Ephesian church in Revelation because it says you've left your first love. 
The loveless marriage doesn't please God. It doesn't fulfill His purpose. Matter of fact, this is love that's given to the undeserving. You're to love your wife as Christ loves the church? Well, you say, well, my wife is such a stinker. You, you, you should see what a terrible lady she is. You know this. Paul would say, I, I'm sorry. I, I told you to love her the way that Christ loves the church. Now, I, I don't care what you think your wife is. I don't care how bad. How bad were you when Jesus Christ loved you? This has nothing to do with how good or bad you think your wife is, with how easy or hard you think she is to love. I told you to love her the way that Christ loves the church. Think of how terrible you were to Jesus, and yet he still loved you. This is the pattern that we're given. It's fascinating here how Paul is essentially teaching two things at once here. He's teaching us about the marriage relationship, but he's also teaching us about the relationship that Jesus has with his church. He's using the love as an ideal husband, as a pattern. You could say that if you take the ideal love of a husband for his wife, that's the love that Jesus has for his church. But if you notice, he says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, husbands, it gets even worse for us. Not worse, really better. It gets better if you understand it. But the command gets stricter. It says, sacrifice. Jesus' action towards the church is a pattern. It helps us define what agape love is all about. It's self-sacrificing love. How should a husband love his wife? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It was the church that he did it for and not for himself. So here's the husband. He says, well, listen, I thought God said that I was the head of the home. Listen, I thought my wife was supposed to submit to you. You are the head of the home. She is supposed to submit to you. Well, 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 then why do I have to lay down my life and sacrifice? Why do I have to humble myself and give away my high-minded reputation, be a servant? I thought I was in charge. There's only one answer to that. You understand headship and submission in a very worldly way. You don't understand it in a godly way. What did Jesus do as the head of the church? What did Jesus do knowing that all authority had been given to him from the Father? He took a towel and put it around his waist and he went and he washed the disciples' feet. You see, we confuse a worldly understanding of headship and submission. Worldly headship says, I am your head, so you take your orders for me and you do whatever I want you to do. Godly headship says, I am your head, so I must care for you and serve you. Worldly submission says, you must submit to me, so here are the things that I want you to do for me. Godly submission says, you must submit to me, so I'm accountable before God for you. I must care for you and serve you. You see the contrast? And what a tragedy it is that so many Christian husbands understand this idea of headship and submission in very worldly ways. Instead, they should look at it the way that God paints it here, where he talks about that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word. When Jesus gave himself for the church on the cross, it also provided cleansing from every stain that sin makes. And since the work of Jesus on the cross comes to us through the word of God and the preached word, it can be said that we're washed by the water of the word. 
Now, this obviously speaks of Jesus' work for the church. And obviously, a husband cannot spiritually cleanse his wife in the same way that Jesus cleanses the church. But a husband can take an active, caring interest in his wife's spiritual health. As the priest of the home, he helps keep her clean before the Lord. And then it says that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Jesus says to his church, you have a wonderful future with me. Isn't that what the husband should be saying to the wife? We have a future together. There's a wonderful future in front of us. And it's a future that not has a spot or a wrinkle. The the Holy Ghost seems to just exhaust all language here, saying no spot, no wrinkle, any such thing. The church will be presented to Jesus Christ in this glorious way. And Paul just keeps going back and forth. It's hard to tell whether here he's telling us more about marriage or more about the church. But he's intertwining the two ideas. Now, Paul is going to get even more pointed, I believe, to the husband's starting at verse 28. When you finish with verse 27, perhaps the men just kind of breathe a little sigh of relief. Whew, I'm glad that's over. You know, let's get on to something else here. No, I think the meat of what Paul is saying is actually included and beginning to be touched on here at verse 28. Look very carefully here. In my mind, I'll give you a little preview here. For me, understanding verses 28 and 29 absolutely revolutionized my perspective on marriage. I hope it made me a better husband. But I'll tell you this, it absolutely revolutionized my perspective on marriage. Look at it here, verses 28 and 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Okay, now, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, the part dealing with the wives, Paul gave three reasons for a Christian wife's submission to her husband. Right? Do you remember the three reasons? The first, it's part of your Christian obedience. The second, it's part of the pattern that, that Jesus has between the... Uh, excuse me, I, I'm sorry. The second was because it's part of the pattern of creation with the husband being the head. And the third was, it's consistent with the illustration of Jesus Christ in the church. Three reasons as to why a wife should submit to her husband. But here, in addressing Christian husbands, Paul also gives three reasons why husbands should love this way. First, they should love their wife this way because it's what love is. When he says, husbands, agape your wife, he's talking about self-sacrificial love. That's the first reason. Second, they should love their wife this way because the relationship between husband and wife has a pattern, the same pattern of Jesus Christ, right? That's the second reason. The third reason is found here. And I think that this is the most neglected aspect of understanding this passage. And I think it's a breakthrough for many men when they understand this. The third reason Why a husband should love his wife this way is because he is one with his wife just as Jesus Christ is one with the church. Look at it again. Those words right there in verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Now, there's a word there that's very important. Just as with the wives, the phrase as to the Lord was very important. So with the husbands, in verse 28, the word as. As is very important. So husbands ought to love their own wives. Okay, we understand that, right? As their own bodies. Okay, you understand what your own body is. 
Do you understand what it is to love your own? What does it mean to love your own wife as your own body? Basically, now I have to say I understood this, or I should say misunderstood this, I, for many years. I, I thought that Paul was basically saying, you should love your wife in the same way that you love your own body. In other words, you take care of yourself, don't you? Right? You feed yourself, you clothe yourself, you make sure you're clean, you, you take care for the comfort of your body in some way or another, right? You take care of yourself, take care of your wife. Now, that would be an improvement in many, many marriages, no doubt about it. But that's not what Paul is speaking about here. The real meaning here is so ought men to love their wives because they are their own bodies. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. A man loves his wife as his own body. A man must love his wife as his body, as a part of himself. As Eve was a part of Adam, taken out of his side, so the wife is to man because she is a part of him. You see, this is it. The husband must realize that the wife is part of himself. You're one with her. This is the great emphasis of the Ephesian passage that is lost on many teachers and on many husbands. One of the great emphases here is, husband, wake up, you are one with this woman. Now might I say, this idea of oneness between husband and wife, very curiously, men do not feel it instinctively. I think women do. Largely speaking, women have an appreciation of oneness, They have a desire for this oneness. I think that instinctively men do not have this. They must learn it. But they can learn it. The Bible teaches it. And in other words, the Bible tells you, husband, you've got to understand that you're not two, you're one. This means that for success in the marriage relationship, we must think and understand, husbands, this concept of oneness. You know, I'll tell you, the world doesn't rely on thinking and understanding in marriage. The world relies on feelings. The world relies upon the concept of romantic love. And when the flame of romantic love is blown out, well then the the marriage is over, right? Then it's just a matter of time because the flame is blown out and there's no love anymore. You know the Bible never gives you that kind of idea at all. The Bible says, no, this, this, this business of a Christian marriage is built on thinking and understanding. I'll tell you what you need to understand first and foremost, husband, is that you are one with this woman. Look at what Paul says there. It's absolutely amazing how he continues here in verse 28, where he says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, love her as yourself, as part of yourself. And then he says, oh man, it's even hard to believe he says this. He who loves his wife loves himself. Simply put, When you love your wife, you benefit yourself. Or maybe I could put it in the negative. When you neglect your wife, you're neglecting yourself. When you abuse your wife, you're abusing yourself, and it will come back to hurt you. Now look, uh, we all know what it's like to neglect something. Like a noise or a maintenance issue on an automobile. Right now, 
my, uh, my car is making a funny noise. It's some noise in the exhaust system. And it's pretty embarrassing driving down the street right now. I'm very thankful that tomorrow I have an appointment with the mechanic and he can finally fix it and get this thing fixed. But I'll be honest, I mean, I started hearing this noise probably a little more than a week ago. And, and me, just like you perhaps, I hoped it would go away. Right, I heard the noise, that's okay, I'll turn the radio up a little bit louder, right? I just neglect it, neglect, I hope it'll go away. Many husbands do this too. Now, what, what, would you do that? Okay, you cut your finger, and it hurts, and it's bleeding, and, and it starts getting a little bit infected. Wait, oh, it'll go away. You just ignore it, well, ignore it, or neglect it, and you just, well, forget about it. It'll go away, right? No, you would never do that with your own body. You realize, this hand is part of me. I can't lose this. It's precious. And so you say, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to take care of it because it's part of me. Husband, you've got to think the same way about your wife. You know why? Because it's true. You are connected to her. She is part of you. Now look, it, it, he says right here in verse 28, excuse me, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Any man in his right mind is going to take care of his own flesh, even if it's just in the sense of feeding and clothing and caring for his own body. He knows that if he doesn't, he's going to suffer for it. In the same way, if a husband understands this, this unity he has with his wife, he's going to nourish and cherish his wife because she is part of you. Look, I'll just tell you, there is an absolutely inescapable law here and, and I would go so far, I usually don't try to overstate things. I'm trying to be very, just very matter of fact here. I would regard it as a law. And the law is simply this. You cannot bless your wife without blessing yourself. You cannot neglect your wife without hurting yourself. You, you cannot abuse or punish or hurt your wife without hurting yourself. But yet how many men neglect this? How many men don't live if like this? You know, there are men, and I have to say at times, to my shame, I have thought this way. There, there are men who are afraid of spoiling their wife. They're, they're afraid of giving them too many compliments, uh, of too much encouragement, uh, of too many good things. Listen, husband, get that out of your mind. If you bless her, you'll be blessed. Can I just call you back to verse 28 here? It says here, verse 28, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself because she's part of you. Now I have to say, when I first was thinking through this whole passage and teaching on it several years ago, as part of a pastor of a previous church and all of that, I was here teaching through this series. And listen, you don't teach through a series like this without going over your wife, going through it with your wife first, right? Not because she needs to be taught it, but you have to say, honey, look, we got to talk about this because I don't want to get up in the pulpit. You know, and say something that's going to really embarrass me because it's so stupid, because it's so evidently wrong. You know, I mean, if it's true, you're going to be able to see it just as much as I. And so I remember my wife and I we were talking about this and talking about this passage. And she said, you know, it kind of bothers me here because it seems like Paul is appealing to a selfish motivation within the man. You know what? I think he is. I think Paul is just basically saying, listen, dummy. I can't get you to love your wife out of some great, noble, self-sacrificing thing. Let me just put it to you another way. If you know what's good for you, you're going to love your wife this way. And might I say, that thinking 
has revolutionized my mindset about marriage, and I would hope that it has made me a better husband. To think in these terms, I cannot bless my wife without me being blessed. So what do you want to do? If you be blessed, you bless your wife. And when I'm not kind to my wife, when I'm not good to her, it always comes back badly on me. Not because she's vindictive, not because anything like that. No, 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 get that out of your mind. It's not because the wife has some deliberate pattern to return upon the husband. It's nothing, nothing, nothing like that. It's just a spiritual law. You are connected to her. You are one flesh with her. You can no more hurt her and get away with it than you could say, oh, my hand's hurting me. Well, you stupid hand, and take out a hammer and start hitting on it. Isn't that the way a lot of husbands are? Their wife is hurting. The wife is hurting over something, and they think that it's the wife's fault, and they kind of need to, you know, well, wake up, you silly woman. And they start hurting the wife more because she's hurting. That makes about as much sense as pounding on your hand because it's sore. Uh, Husbands need to grab a hold of this. I remember once I I heard about an occasion. It was illustrated very, very vividly. I heard a pastor speaking about this. This It's not my story, but I think it's a good story. And he was sharing about how on one occasion uh, he he was, uh, well, he was married. It was a young marriage. They were both in ministry, and they didn't have any money. You know, money was very, very tight. It was just the, the, the early days of their marriage. It was very difficult. And they had made an agreement between husband and wife that said, we will not spend money Without agreement first. Oh, I'm not talking about groceries or gasoline. We won't go out and buy anything unless we agree upon it. Husband and wife both agreed on this. And for some reason, in the uh, inescapable way that men have, the husband thought that he was you know, more godly or more wise or more spiritual. And he thought God told him to go out and buy a new bed for the husband and wife. So he went out and bought a new bed and spent money that they didn't have. And he was, you know, well, I felt the Lord told me to do it, so I did it. And it reduced the wife to tears, and they fought a lot about it, and it was a big point of conflict in their marriage. So what did they do? They went to marriage counseling. They went to the pastor or a pastor at the church that they went to, and the church that they were going to was Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, and the man that they saw for pastoring counseling there was a man named, well, Pastor Romaine. And they went into Romaine's office, uh, which was really the church sanctuary, and he said, well, why don't you tell me what the problem is? And the husband said, well, you know, uh, I felt like the Lord was telling me to, uh, to buy this bed. And so I went out and I bought this bed. And my wife won't submit to me. You know, I, I went over the verses with her. I showed her right there in Ephesians 5.22 that she should submit to me. And she won't submit to her. Romaine, tell her to submit to me. And, and Romaine listened. And then he, he turned to the wife. And he said, he said uh, well, why don't you tell me what's wrong? The wife didn't say a word. She just burst into tears. He let her cry for just a bit. I don't know, maybe he patted her arm. I don't know, I wasn't there. I heard the story secondhand. But then he turned to the husband and he said, you, fix this. And he said, well, what? no, wait a minute. I mean, I'm the husband. She's supposed to say, he said, no, no, you didn't hear me. You, you fix this. You did this, you fix it. Now listen, I could probably say that if you wanted to give some cold, clinical, theological argument, you could say, yes, the wife should have submitted to the husband, you know, Ephesians 5.22, all of that. But listen, do you understand what the husband was doing in that situation? He was completely violating the principle of oneness. Here was his wife right next to him, part of him hurting, and he was completely indifferent to it. He thought the hurt was her problem, and it was her job to get over it. And I tell you, That attitude persists in many marriages. This idea 
that, well, I'm right, she's wrong, it's her job to get over it, and that's all there is to it. Listen, it was a turning point for me, and I, I, I say that reservedly because I don't want to make it sound like I've turned this great corner as a husband, and you know now I'm this wonderful husband, and you know that because believe me, I still have my struggles and all of that. But even allowing for all of that, it was a significant turning point for me when I just made a change in my thinking in marriage. Because for many years, I had an unspoken prayer in my marriage. Now, again, I, I want to stress it was an unspoken prayer because I was too spiritual to actually vocalize it, right? We all understand there's things that you just shouldn't pray. But I have to be honest, this mentality was in my head. And the mentality was this, Lord, bless me and change my wife. Now, let me tell you, nothing improved in my marriage when I thought that way. Nothing. Until God just, just well, through many different ways... God got a hold of me and showed me I had it exactly wrong. The attitude I had to have in prayer was, Lord, bless my wife and change me. You know, I have to say, I never, never pray. I don't think I have prayed for I don't know how many years for God to change my wife on anything. You know what? That is His business. That is, and my wife is a godly woman. She listens to the Lord. God can change her a lot quicker than he can change me. I don't have to pray one bit that God would change my wife. I'm not trying to say that she's perfect. She's, no, she's not, and I know she's not. But I will tell you this. She's a lot more responsive to the Lord than I am. And so what am I doing praying like I have to get down on my knees and pray that God would change my wife? What, are you kidding me? She's a lot more sensitive to God than I am. No, I need to pray that God would change me. And as for my wife, I pray, God bless her. You know what I have to say? I, I, I have to be honest and confess to you before my brothers and sisters, I confess it right now, that is a somewhat selfish prayer that I pray when I say, Lord, bless my wife. Because I know very well, if she's blessed, then I'm going to be blessed because I'm joined to her. I'm one with her. If she's happy and blessed, I'm happy and blessed. <laughs> You know, if she's prospering emotionally and physically and spiritually, man, I am too. Hallelujah. And I don't know, I just think God knew that men were just such selfishly oriented guys <laughs> that he said, I'll build the system to where it's in their advantage to bless their wife it's in their advantage to do this and i'll make it to when they do that they get rewarded so much listen i would say that the great missing idea for many many christian men is they don't think and act according to the principle of oneness anytime i have to talk to men about it that's what i stress to them and I say, it seems to have been a blessing to the men that, that, that I have spoken to, and I know that it's been a blessing in my life, and I hope it's been a blessing in the life of my wife as well. Now, he goes on here. Let's take a look. Verse 30. We have to make our way through this passage. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Paul here brings the analogy back in a circle. First, the relationship between Jesus and the church spoke to us about the husband and wife relationship. Now the marriage relationship speaks to us about the relationship between Jesus and his people. 
And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He's trying to say, this is what Jesus did for us. And what did Jesus do? He came so that he would be one with his people, be joined to his wife. And let me say, just as much as Jesus did that, and that's his goal with his people, that is the fact of Christian marriage. Husband, I'm not telling you to be one with your wife. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm telling you, you are one with her. You're joined to her. And that fact is either a blessing or a curse to you. Now, if you're being good to your wife and you're blessing her and you're honoring her and you're building her, then that oneness is a blessing to you. But if you're neglecting her, if you're abusing her, if you're being harsh to her, then that oneness, well, that's a problem to you. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, speaking to us about this great unity between Jesus and his people. Now, verse 33, let's just look at this summary comment to husbands and wives. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I think this is amazing. Paul has this way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of summing up things in such a brilliant sentence. He says, nevertheless, I've been teaching on two things at once. I've been teaching you about this great mystical spiritual union between Jesus and his people, but I've also been teaching you about this relationship between the husband and the wife because one is a pattern for the other. But, but now he says, okay, I know I've been sort of waxing eloquent on this idea of Jesus and the church. Let me get back. Nevertheless, let me get back to marriage. Let's get back to the nuts and bolts of this. I got off topic a little bit. Let's come back to the matter of marriage, and I'll sum it up for you. Let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Can we just break that apart right now? Look at the first line. Let each one of you. This means that everyone is included. We can say this about all the teaching on marriage in this passage. Listen, it's very easy to say, well, I'm just not that sort of person and I won't do that very well. Some husbands say, well, you know, I'm not a real loving guy. No, it's just not the way I am. Oh, yeah? Oh, I'm sorry. Then rip that page out of your Bible. Excuse me. No, no, no. Let each one of you. Listen, don't wives do it too? So, oh, I'm just not the submissive kind. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I guess this doesn't apply to you then. Of course it does apply to you. Let each one of you. Listen, no matter what your natural disposition is, you have a target to shoot for. And let each one of you in particular means that we should all set our eyes on the target the Bible shows for us. Every one of us. Nobody should excuse themselves from these commandments to husbands and wives... Because it goes against their nature. Welcome to the club. So what are you supposed to do? So love his own wife as himself. Paul again stresses the unity that husbands must recognize and let shape all of his thinking and all his actions. You see how he refers back to it again. Love his own wife as himself. She's one of She's a part of you. Recognize it. Think it. Live it. I'll never forget, 
Uh, early in our marriage, uh, Ingla and I got to know a couple at our church, and just a lovely couple. And, you, you know, look, I don't want to over-romanticize it. It's not like their marriage was perfect. I'm sure they had their problems, just like anybody else. But you could tell there was something special about this marriage. And, and I remember years later speaking to this man. His name was Jeff. And I said, Jeff, tell me about it. You know, what is it that between you and Cindy, you guys seem to have a real special relationship. What, what is it? You know, and he said, very early in his relationship with his wife, he understood this oneness principle and he thought to live and act accordingly. I tell you, it showed in their marriage. Husbands, if you can get this, you will be a long way ahead of being the kind of husband you should be. You just say, I am one with this woman. I can't bless her without blessing myself. I can't hurt her without hurting myself. So let the husband love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, he's calling the wife to pay special attention here. This may be a place where many wives might excuse themselves for one reason or another, but Paul emphasizes, hey wives, you see it right here that you respect your husband. Now listen, this this respect is essentially the same idea as submission recognizing and respecting the headship, the authority of the husband in marriage. Listen, if I had to say, the great temptation for a husband in marriage is to neglect the oneness principle, okay? To think of himself in detachment from his wife. I'm me, she's her, we're detached, you know, what happens to her doesn't necessarily affect me and all that. Paul wants to erase that. He goes, no, you're one with her. Okay, So that's what husbands do. Husband, get this oneness idea in your mind because you're prone to think of detachment. Now, what is the wife tempted to? Wives seem to have, generally speaking, of course I'm speaking in generalities, but generally speaking, don't women seem to have this instinct for oneness? You know, the, the wife just wants this oneness, this joining, this communion with her husband. And the husband seems very content just to live his life in detachment, doesn't he? The husband seems very content. Well, we just live our own lives, almost like roommates, except for the sex. Isn't it great? You know, that's the way a lot of husbands think. It's, well, it's wonderful. You know, isn't that great? The wife is aching for this oneness because she instinctively has an appreciation for it. Now, before we go and start applauding the wives, oh, the wives have it all right about marriage by instinct. No, 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 no. What's the great temptation for the wife? The wife wants to think of the oneness with no head. Oh, yeah, we're one. And that means we're equal partners. No, no, no. The Bible says there is a oneness And the oneness has a head, and it's the husband. Wife, that's what you have to remember. Don't don't over-romanticize your natural attraction to the oneness. It's great. It has its place in God's plan. It's wonderful. But what you have to remember is this oneness is not a headless entity. Nor is it an entity with two heads, right? It's not headless. It doesn't have two heads, It's an entity with a head, and you're not it. It's your husband. Now, let's be honest. By nature, that's difficult for many women to really take in and to think and to act accordingly. So don't you see, God has really engineered this in a marvelous way. He's engineered it so that marriage challenges something in men. 
What does it challenge? This, this, this detachment, this, this sort of almost sinful independence that I'll just be selfish and think of myself. God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to engineer marriage so it doesn't work right unless you die to self and leave that behind. Then what does he say to the wives? Well, the wives might have this sinful tendency to, to just think of marriage as this either headless thing or this thing with two heads. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to make you die to self through this whole principle of respect for your husband and submission. And this is what you must do in the marriage. And it's how you'll die to self. And God uses both of these difficulties in marriage to really raise us up into Christian perfection. Now listen. You need to understand that your marriage and your marriage partner was given to you divinely by God to work on these difficult areas in your life. I think it's a turning point when we understand this. I know it was for me. Again, my wife is wonderful and has very, very few faults. But but occasionally there's some fault or some weakness in her that, that will grate on me and rub me the wrong way and provide some kind of difficulty. Let me tell you, what I have learned over the years is now I say, I look at that and I say, listen, this isn't easy, it isn't pleasant, but I need this. There is some divine reason why I need this. Because I'll tell you what, in my flesh, I know what I thought about my wife. In my flesh, I thought that God gave me a wife to make me comfortable and happy. Isn't that why he gave me a wife? So that I could be comfortable and happy. And therefore, when I wasn't comfortable and when I wasn't happy, my wife wasn't doing something right. And then I realized, what am I, a stinking pagan? No. God gave me a wife to work these things in my life of Christian maturity and perfection so that he could be raising me up into the image of Jesus Christ. Therefore, all the good points, all the blessings, all the strengths of my wife, of which there are so many in Ingalil, so filled with those things, those are a blessing to me and those are used by God to bless me and shape me into the man that I am and that I will be. And even her weaknesses and failings have a divine role in that plan. Even her weaknesses and failings, of which there are few, have a role in God's working in my life. And so I don't have that carnal perspective anymore, or at least I try not to, of saying, oh, well, you know, it's not easy. She's not making me happy or comfortable. Then, Then it can't be right from the Lord. No, not at all. And so he says, again, summing it up brilliantly here, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If Paul's message in this great passage could be boiled down into two principles that must govern our thinking and our actions as married people, those two are simply this. Husbands, understand that you and your wife are one, that you're a unity. Wives, Understand that your unity has a head, your husband. Now, wives are very quick to embrace and understand the husband's principle. The wife wants that to be the governing principle of the marriage. Oh yeah, we're one, we're one, we're one. And the husbands are quick to embrace the wife's principle. And they want that to be the governing principle of the marriage. Right? Oh, I'm the head, I'm the head, I'm the head. But you know what the solution is? The solution is to let your principle govern you. Isn't it brilliant? 
Haven't you noticed how the Holy Spirit puts it to us? He never ever says, husbands, make sure your wife is submitting to you. (laughs) Isn't that exactly how some husbands read it? No, no, no. It never ever says that. No, instead it says, wives, this is your matter before the Lord. Husbands, this is your matter before the Lord. And I tell you what, some husbands become absolute biblical scholars when it comes to to the, the commandments of the wife's submission. Listen, you knucklehead. Stop that. Let God deal with your wife about this. As I said before, do you think you're some dream to submit to? If you were a better husband, you would make it a lot easier instead of such a grievous trial to to, to submit to to, to you. No, we should let our principle govern us. When you have a husband thinking, I'm one with my wife, and I have to think that way and act that way. And when you have a wife that thinks, my husband is the head of our oneness, and I need to respect him and defer to him as the head, you're going to have a happy biblical marriage. And that's it. That is what is unique about a Christian marriage. So we need to lift our vision up. Listen, um, I would tell anybody, you want to have a better marriage? Yes, do the 10-point checklist on communication. Yes, do the date night. You know, on and on, all the helpful hints that the books, even the Christian books are filled with, great. But if you don't understand these foundations biblically, you're not going to understand a Christian marriage. I don't want you to have a good pagan marriage. I want you to have a biblical Christian marriage. One that recognizes the unique glory of the Christian marriage as both an illustration and a reflection of Christ's glorious relationship to the church. You know what? You can have that. You can live it. Many people are discouraged. They think, I can't have it. It's beyond me. It'll never happen. No, no, no. I'm here to tell you that it can be that good for you. And especially I say to young people, the sooner you learn these principles, the better. You don't have to go through 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years before you learn them. You can learn them and go into your marriage knowing what they are and enjoy that kind of blessing. Well, I kind of look at my watch and I see the time has gotten away for us as I knew that it absolutely would. Uh, Though intending to go through the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 6, I think we'll end it right here, and next time that we're together, we'll do the whole chapter together. The actual first nine verses go fairly quickly. So we'll end it here this evening now. Let's close in prayer. Father, when we see the glory of a Christian marriage, we realize, Lord, the wisdom of your plan, how you've given us this great institution of marriage, Lord, not only for our comfort, not only for our happiness, but Lord, for your great work of sanctification and transformation in our life. It's one of your keys to Christian growth for us, Lord. And so we're grateful for it. And Father, I I pray that for those who are married, that you would give them the wisdom, that you would give them the biblical insight to live as Christian husbands and as Christian wives, underscoring these essential principles that we've seen here this evening. And Lord, I pray for those who are not yet married. I pray, God, that you would give them great wisdom and great ability to not only look for a prospective uh, husband or wife, depending on these biblical principles, but Lord, also to build from the earliest stages of the relationship this understanding. So that, Lord, we could understand the great blessing that you intend marriage to be, both for our comfort, our happiness, but Lord, especially for our Christian transformation.
We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.